So now I'm going to invite up my good friend, Luke, and he's going to give us the next message in our series today. Hey, good morning, everybody. Yeah, happy 4th of July weekend. I'm really excited to speak with you this morning again. Van, actually, our senior pastor, is speaking at a vineyard in Price Hill that was planted out of this church. So that's pretty exciting. If any of you don't feel like, listen to me, you want to go hear him. If you leave right now, you'll probably be able to make it for the second service. So, (laughs) so yeah, man, I'm so excited to share with you all what's on my heart this morning. It's actually kind of, it's kind of going to be like I'm sharing part two to the message I, I gave here last weekend. So if you didn't if you weren't here to hear that message last weekend there might be not a whole lot there might be a couple of things that um you might might have some questions about a couple of things and if that's the case i encourage you listen to last week's message because i probably talked about it in more detail then but basically as we're continuing on in this praying from heaven's perspective message What I really want to focus in on now is what is heaven's perspective of the evil that happens on our planet still? Because when Jesus came, he came and he brought his kingdom and he restored our ability to enter into a relationship with God. And he gave us so much amazing stuff, but evil still exists in the world. He didn't come and abolish evil. And so the question is why Is there still evil? And so to review from last Sunday, first thing I want to remind you of is that I made the point that our beliefs about someone really affect how we communicate with them. If I believe that you dislike me, the way I communicate with you is going to be very different than if I think that you like me. And so then I asked you all the question, What do our prayers say? So when we communicate with God, that's how we define prayer. What do our prayers say about what we believe about God? And a lot of times our prayers look like us trying to convince God to do something good. We really want something to happen and we're trying to convince him to do something good. Quick clarification. I'm not talking about winning the lottery. When I say pray for him to do something good, I'm not talking about getting a new car. I'm not talking to the single people in here, that person you really want to date. Not talking about that. I'm talking about when we pray against evil. When we are praying for something that we know is good, that there is beyond a shot, there's no shadow of a doubt whether it's good or evil. It is either we're praying against something evil or praying for something that is bona fide good. When our prayers look like us trying to convince God to do something good or convince him to stop something that's evil, that can be problematic because that tells us that we have incorrect beliefs about him. And so when we are praying to try to convince God to act in our favor, oftentimes either we don't think we are good, we don't think that God is good, or we have a flawed view of God's goodness. A flawed view of God's goodness. When we have a flawed view of God's goodness, 
we probably would try to convince him to do something good because we are terrified that he wants to use something evil in our lives to teach us a lesson or to allow us to learn something. And so then we pray to convince him to do something good because we have a flawed view of his goodness. And the point I made last week is that I am convinced that God does not need to use the devil's means to achieve his ends. God can use God means to achieve God ends. He doesn't need to use Satan's means. He doesn't need to use evil to bring about good. Now, with that clarification, when evil does happen in our lives, God is ridiculously redemptive. He will take anything, and I mean anything evil that happens to us, and work it out for good. But it doesn't mean that was plan A. And that is really the important thing that we have to understand. And so if we believe that, if we believe that God doesn't use the devil to achieve his, his ends, doesn't use the devil's means to achieve his ends, then when we are praying against evil and it seems like nothing happens and the evil is allowed to permit, we have to ask ourselves a question. If God really is good and he's not allowing evil to accomplish one of his purposes and he's not causing evil to accomplish one of his purposes, if he's really good, then, and if he's God, if he's all powerful, if he can do everything, then why is it that evil is still happening? And I remember being in that situation myself. A lot of you know that a little over a year ago, Will and Jen lost their first child. And um, they found out while, while she was still, uh, we don't know what the gender was, while the baby was still in the womb, that there was no heartbeat. And then a month later, she miscarried. And I prayed every single day for life to that baby without fail. And I know that that is good. I'm not asking for a Ferrari there. That is good. And for that baby to die was evil. And it's black and white. And so I had to ask myself the question, why did that prayer not result in the baby coming back to life? And that's really the question that we are trying to answer right now. If God didn't allow it and God didn't cause it, then what in the world is going on? Also, I want to take a second. And I I want to... I, wanted, I can't relate with people that I'm about to talk to, but I can sympathize with you because people I love are in a similar situation to you. If you are sitting in this room and you've been dealing with some kind of long-term suffering, could be um, some kind of sickness or disease or injury, then I just want to tell you that I see how hard it can be for you to come to this church and to hear about how God healed this headache, or to heal about, hear about how God healed this person's cancer, hear about all this healing that's happening, and look at your own life and be like, wow, I've been praying for God to heal me for 10 years. What's going on? I just wanted to call it out. I can see how difficult that would be. And to make matters worse, you've probably heard before that people are telling you, oh, well, you know, you just, you got to find whatever sin you committed in the past and make sure you for, you repent for that. And so then God will heal you or whatever bogus someone might say to you. I see how hard it can be. And I know that it's an internal war in your mind. I know part of you really wants to be excited by this cool stuff that you see God doing, 
But then there's that other part of you. It's like, man, I just wish it would happen for me. And no one in this room judges you for having that internal dialogue. Some of us, most of us in here cannot comprehend the suffering that some of you have been through and the sacrifices you've had to make. And if we were in your situation, we'd have that internal dialogue going on just as well. So I just want to call you out some of the strongest people that are in this room. And we all together as a church say, we got your guys' back. And we understand how hard it can be. And so, who is to blame when a good prayer goes unanswered? Who is to blame when we pray for a baby to come back to life and it doesn't happen? Well, some would say that most of the time, we are to blame. If you just had enough faith when you prayed, it might have happened. If you just repented of all of your sin, it might happen. If you just forgave all the people that you've had grudges against, it might have happened. And these people that are victims of that kind of abusive teaching, they search desperately their past to see, is there anybody that I'm forgetting, go through all my Facebook friends, if there's anybody, did I ever post a negative post about someone on social media? Is there anyone who I have some kind of grudge against or I sinned against somehow because I want to forgive them because people are telling me unless I do that, I'm not going to get healed. And these people get exasperated by this process. And then you know what? A lot of times they adopt a flawed view of God's goodness eventually. Well, I've done everything I can possibly think of. And so it must just be that God is allowing this evil in my life for a better purpose. Or he's causing this evil in my life to teach me something. And who's to blame them when they're hearing, hey, it's your fault. I would probably do the same thing. But you look through the scriptures, there are so many people that got healed or had some kind of miracle happen to them without any faith at all. First off, Lazarus, how much faith did he have? He's dead. <laughs> he didn't have any faith. Dead people don't have faith. Also, a perfect example of this is a man came to Jesus whose son um, was demonized and was having seizures and was getting close to killing himself. And um, he came to Jesus and he said, if you can help my son, if you can. And Jesus is like, if I can, man, all things can be done for the one who believes. And then he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Faith is not mental certainty. Faith is not having no doubts. Faith is, in spite of your doubts, continue to press on towards God. And so if you have been trying to, if someone's been praying for you and your goal is, oh my gosh, I just have to make sure I don't have any doubts because I don't want to cancel out their prayer. Man, that is not, that's not what's going on in the situation. You don't have to think that your doubts are going are to prevent healing from coming because you're the one just letting them pray for you in the first place. That's faith. Okay, that's another message, but I'm going to stop right there. <clears throat> some would say that most of the time we are to blame, and then some would say that most of the time God is to blame. That, And this is the thing that we've been talking about, 
I don't want to spend too much time on it, but some would say that, hey, that evil, God is allowing it because he's got a greater picture in mind for you. And I, don't, I do want to say that God sees things and he understands things well beyond our comprehension. A lot of times we're in a situation and we can't see um, everything that's at stake. But I will say that that doesn't cause me to doubt whether evil is black and white or not. And that there is stuff that is evil and it's just pure evil and un, no, un, under no circumstance is God going to use it because it's evil. He can always find a better way with good. But some people would say most of the time God is to blame. Um, you're still sick because he wants to teach you patience or he wants to teach you perseverance or whatever. Or um, you get put in this terrible situation because there's people here that you want to, that God wants you to preach the gospel to. <clears throat> it's funny to me that when evil happens, we think to blame ourselves. We think to blame God, but we don't ever think to blame the enemy. We don't ever think to blame the one who's called the deceiver. The accuser. We don't think to blame the one who actually allowed evil to enter into God's creation into the first place. Who perpetuated evil on our planet. Who was the first one to sin. We don't, what's up with that? We don't, it's, it's not surprising to me that the devil is the one who's least looked at. While us and God are kind of having a match to see who is at blame for an unanswered prayer. It's not surprising to me at all. I believe that most of the time the enemy is to blame for the evil that happens in our world. I believe that most of the time when you pray for something good or you pray against something evil and it doesn't happen, the enemy is to blame, not God and not you. I believe the enemy is to blame most of the time when a good prayer goes unanswered. I keep using this term, the enemy, just in case there's anybody in here who is unfamiliar with what I'm talking about. What we believe is that God has existed for eternity, that he also created angels as servants. And this is all before earth and the physical realm and all that. This is in the spiritual realm. And that a third of the angels actually rebelled against God and his angels and turned their back on him. And in that, all of a sudden we had a war between good and evil going on. And that when the earth was created, that there was a good kingdom that was established. Um, and that because of some, some things that happened, which I'm going to get into later, there was an evil kingdom that was established. And that the enemy, we oftentimes will use the pronoun he. I'm not suggesting that the devil is male. I'm not suggesting the devil even has horns or, you know, wears a red suit running around doing stuff. Or has a pitchfork, you know. I'm not saying any of that. But we do believe in, just like we look in the world and we see good and evil, you look in the spiritual part of the world, you see a devil and you see God. We believe that. And I believe that most of the time the enemy is to blame for when a good prayer doesn't, doesn't happen. And so what I want to spend the rest of my time doing is talking about how that can be. And I think two big issues with saying that, at least two big issues that come to my mind, 
would be this. One, isn't the enemy defeated? Didn't Christ suffer the, the winning blow at the cross? How can the enemy still be to blame for unanswered prayer, for, for prayers that when we pray them, the result doesn't happen? And the second one is, how can the enemy prevail over the will of God? If you're, Luke, if you're telling me that God both, he wants me to be healed, but I'm not healed because of the enemy, you're saying that the enemy is like winning out over God over me. How can that be possible? Well, hopefully those two questions at least have more clarity by the end of what I'm going to present this morning. And so what I want to start with is where all of this, where all this began in the first place, where this battle between good and evil began in the first place. And so to do that, we're going to go all the way back to Genesis 1. Okay? So you can start to flip there right now. I'm also going to draw you a picture. I hope that you like it. Um, so I want to draw the picture of all of the, the different realms that I was talking about at the creation of the earth. Okay? So you've got when God created the earth, you already had heaven. We'll put heaven up here in green. If you can't read it, it says heaven, you know, some clouds, because there's definitely clouds in heaven, you know, not really, but I'm just going to do that anyway. And then we've got the earth, and I'm not actually saying the earth is like, or sorry, that heaven is like actually above us, like if we just travel this, this way for enough miles, we'll get to heaven. Maybe heaven's east, I don't know where heaven is, but just for the sake of the drawing, you know, put heaven above. And then we've got earth and earth has got its land masses. I don't know what country this is. It's probably, let's just say that's Antarctica. Cause I'm sure none of you know what Antarctica actually looks like. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> and then we have at this point in time, there was a place called hell that existed. And it's because Satan and his angels, they were kicked out of heaven when, oh my gosh, what a terrible flame. (laughs) Sorry. As you can tell, art is not my forte. Can you see this now, Jordan? Cool. (laughs) Could you not see it before? Okay. So anyways, um, oops. So we've got heaven, we've got earth, and we've got hell. This was what the reality was at the beginning. And so now let's read that text. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 say this. Then God said, let us make man in our own, in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Remember that word subdue. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But basically, if I could sum up what we just read, two 
major things that God gave humanity at creation were these. One, he gave humanity an identity. Two, he gave humanity authority. Identity. God said, let us create man in our image, in our likeness. And by the way, the pronoun our is used talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God said, let us create mankind in our image, in our likeness. An image. What's an image? If I were to hold up a $1 bill to you all right now, maybe I have one. Well, I've got a five. No, I got a one too. Okay. If I were to hold up a $1 bill and I were to ask you, whose face is that? Or no, sorry, 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 sorry. If I ask you, who is that? What would you say? George Washington, right? Whose face would probably work too? You'd say, this is George Washington. And I'd be like, huh, he looks a little, uh, he looks more papery than he did. You didn't get that. <laughs> so point I, tried, point I just miserably did not make is that this is a piece of paper, everybody. This is not a human being. Okay. This is a piece of paper, but you all said this is George Washington because of the image that is on it. When you see this, you recognize George Washington in the same way. Humanity isn't God, but humanity is meant to reflect the image of God so that when the creation sees us, they see God because we bear his image. Also, a part of identity was, was likeness, meaning we are like God. We're not God, but we are like God. We're made of the same stuff as God is maybe a way you could say it. So we got an identity from God. Most people find this part obvious, but then... We also got authority and we got authority because there was a biblical mandate at the beginning for humanity, not just to be in paradise and have their feet up by the pool and have, you know, ice lemonade and someone to rub their feet. Like biblical mandate at the beginning was for humanity to rule the earth and not just rule over it, but to subdue it. That word subdue in the Hebrew is really interesting. It's really cool. As I was studying, I realized that the word subdue actually means to take what is out of control and bring it under control. And so what that implies is that there was something at the beginning, after God finished his creation, there was something that was not quite in control. That was kind of a little wild, a little chaotic. I mean, subdue, I think of subduing a criminal when I hear the word subdue. And that's kind of what the word implies. So what could possibly have needed to be subdued at the beginning before humanity sinned? Before evil came into the world? What needed to be subdued? Well, I'm going to answer that, but here's what I want to say first. I believe that God created the earth in such a way so that it actually was required 
that humanity would need to use the authority it was given by God to complete the creation. That God has always wanted to do things with us, not just for us. God wanted to create with us, not just for us. Think about it. This is why human beings are capable of reproduction. God could have been like, all right, we'll make the garden, the whole earth, and how about three billion people? They probably won't get too cramped. Boom. And that's creation. He didn't do that. Why? Because he wanted us to create with him. He wanted us to create with him. You know, I think about my dad. He owns a company, innovation consulting company, and market research and a bunch of stuff. And while me and my brothers were growing up, he did that for us so that he could provide for us. And I know he enjoyed that. But after my, uh, my, one of my younger brothers, the middle child, I have two younger brothers, after Joey graduated college, he started working with my dad. So my dad was no longer doing the family business for him. He was doing it with him. And I guarantee you, my dad received twice, if not three times as much joy out of doing the company with his son than for his son. In the same way, our father, he loves to do things for us, but even more than that, he wanted to do things with us. And because he so badly wanted to do things with us, he actually set it up at creation that we had to subdue some stuff. Now, it wasn't evil. It wasn't sin, but it's kind of like a horse that hasn't been tamed yet. I kind of see that's how the earth was. The earth was like an untamed horse. It's not evil. It's not full of malice. It's just untamed. It's got to be tamed. And so he gave us the authority to tame that untamed horse, tame the earth, subdue the earth. So that's where we were at the beginning. But we all know, well, maybe, a lot, maybe we don't all know, but we know something went wrong because the earth went from paradise to a, being a, broke, a place with a lot of good, but also a lot of evil. And so what went wrong was that human beings chose to disobey God after being tempted by the enemy. And when they chose to disobey God, oh, by the way, I don't, I'm not actually saying there's flames in hell either. Okay. Just want to put that out there. Who knows what's in hell, but we all think of flames. So at the fall, our identity became skewed. We, we still had the image of God. We still were made like God, but we also had the image of sin. When the world saw us in our bad moments, they saw sin. They saw the devil more than God. And we had a sin nature. That's not a part of God at all. That sin nature was not the likeness of God. That was the likeness of Satan. So that happened at the fall is that the earth, God's beloved creation, was distorted. Now, that's what happened to the identity. A question that I never really heard anybody ask before, for recently anyways, was what happened to the authority at the fall? What happened to the authority that was given to humanity to complete God's creation. I th- some might say, well, God probably just took it back. 
could say that. But I would have to disagree because if you give somebody authority, what is implied in actually giving them authority is that if they choose to mess the authority up that you gave them, negative consequences are actually going to happen. That you are taking a risk when you give somebody your authority. For example, when Van started letting me preach three or four years ago, (laughs) big risk. Okay. Now he gave me the authority to speak to his congregation, to teach his congregation. It's not like he was back in the prayer room with a little radio and I had a like FBI earpiece in my ear and he would say, Luke, say this. And then I said it, Luke, say this. God is good and he loves you. God is good. And he, he, it wasn't like that. He had to sit over there in that chair, cross his fingers, <laughs> hold his breath at times and let me say what I was planning on saying. And believe me, there are a couple times where he got a couple of emails after a sermon that I gave. <laughs> okay? Not denying that at all. But the point is, when he gave me the authority to teach, he was taking a risk and he had to accept any negative consequences that would come with that. In the same way, when God gave humanity authority, he was taking a risk. And he was choosing to accept whatever negative consequences might come from that. And what was the negative consequence? The consequence was that we gave up our authority and we put it in the hands of the devil. And the devil completed God's creation. God never meant for there to be cancer on this planet. That was the devil that sowed that into our reality. God never meant for there to be broken relationships on our planet. The enemy sowed that into God's creation. God never meant for there to be hatred or murder or rape or any of that stuff. Lying, theft. God never meant for that to get woven into his creation. But because the enemy got hold of the authority that was originally intended for us, that is exactly what happened. And that is why when Jesus was being tempted by the devil... If you remember, the devil says to him, if you just bow down and worship me, I will give, I'll make you Lord over all of this place. I always thought the devil was lying. He wasn't lying. He was telling the truth. He actually did have authority over the earth at that time. He still had it from the garden, but little did he know, or maybe he suspected that Jesus's mission was actually to come and take that authority back and put it back in the hands of the church. That's a good word. That's why 1 John 3, 8 says that the son of man was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, that means to heal and to do that stuff, but it also means to destroy this work of the devil, the one that happened at the beginning. So the devil got hold of the authority that that God meant for humanity to have. Now, We know that there's a part two to this story, that God did not just leave us here, but that he would rather die than be out of relationship with us. And so he sent his son, Jesus, who came, who took on the very vehicle that the enemy used to steal our identity and steal our authority. He took that on himself 
killed it and rose again so that he could have their authority restored to him and that the people of God could be in relationship with God again. And so that was the counter move of heaven to hell's move in Genesis 3. Now the question is, if Jesus came and took all authority back, how is it that evil can still happen? If we are saying that the enemy is to blame for evil. Let's, and to set this up a little bit more, let's read Matthew 28 verse 18. Okay. We're going to read two passages and... One of them is going to be about Jesus. The other is going to be about the devil. And there's a very important distinction between these passages that I think is the key for understanding how evil can still be permitted on this planet. So Matthew twenty-eight eighteen says this. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So like we said, Jesus came back, took the authority from the hands of the enemy, restored to himself. Then he gave it to us. But 1 John 5, 19 says this. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay. So Jesus got all authority in heaven and on earth. And if Jesus has all authority, how much does the devil have? None. But this other passage says that the whole world is under the power of the evil one. So did he get the authority or not? Well, here's the thing. There's a difference between authority and power. Okay. Power is the ability to do something. Most basic definition I can think of. The enemy has the power to keep someone sick. The enemy has the power to attack a relationship. The enemy has the power to attack someone's body. I, I, don't, I want to rewind. The enemy doesn't have the power to keep someone sick without a fight. The enemy has the power to attack somebody's body. The enemy has the power to attack somebody's relationships. The enemy has the power to attack somebody's faith, temptation. Anybody ever experienced it before? The enemy has the, the, enemy has the power to do things. Authority is different, though. Authority is the legal right to do something. So, this is what's going on. The enemy's power is illegal. When the enemy does things, it is illegal because all authority is in the hands of the kingdom of God and the people of God. But the enemy's still exercising his illegal power nonetheless on the earth. It's kind of like when you have a good ruling government or force or whatever, and then you have terrorists who are just kind of rogue and they're totally acting illegally, but they are still doing things nonetheless. They're still causing damage nonetheless, even though they have no authority. So God has all the authority, but the enemy still has power. God and his people have the legal right to spread their kingdom, but the enemy still has the ability to spread his illegal kingdom. And so that's where we are. We are in a battle. As we are living on this planet, we are in a battle between heaven and hell, between good and evil. Good news is we have the actual authority. 
And with our authority comes the greater power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And we also know that in the end, this war is already won. This is what we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God being now and not yet. What is the kingdom of God? Best passage I can think of that talks about the kingdom of God would be Matthew 6. I bet you all of you actually have this verse memorized. You maybe didn't even know it. But Matthew 6 verses 9 and 10 say this. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, this scripture says your kingdom come, your will be done. Those actually mean the same thing. Where God's kingdom is, his will is being done. And where God's will is being done, that is where his kingdom is. Where Jesus is Lord is where his kingdom is. When somebody comes into relationship with God, that is where God's will is being done. Boom, God's kingdom is there. When somebody suffers some kind of tragedy, God's will is not being done in that situation. So that is an opportunity for the kingdom of God to actually move in, but the kingdom of God is not currently there. When someone is, yeah. So the kingdom of God is where God's will is being done. But then the question is, well, how do we know what God's will is? Easy. In the scripture, it says his will is on earth as it is in heaven. Notice he didn't say on earth as it is in hell. In fact, on earth as it is in heaven is the opposite of on earth as it is in hell. So what's happening in heaven? Well, there's perfect love. There's worship. There is no disease whatsoever. And if God's will is that what is happening up there would be happening down here, then we can confidently say that it is never God's will for somebody to be diseased. Don't believe me? It's right here. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not on earth as it is in hell. In hell is where there's torment. In hell is where there's affliction. In hell is where there is um, evil suffering. That is not God's will. And so his kingdom is when heaven's reality breaks into earth and when the enemy's reality is pushed back. And so we say the kingdom of God is now and not yet. And this is what we mean. There will be a day when the earth will shoot up and become one with heaven. When there will be a new heaven and a new earth and the enemy will have no authority, nor will the enemy have any power to do anything. The enemy will be completely defeated and totally silenced and totally incapacitated. That is a reality that is coming. And that's, what we, that's, what, that's the part of the not yet kingdom. But then when we say the kingdom is now, what we mean is that Jesus came and really brought God's kingdom. And so we can pray and see miracles happen. We can pray and see God's kingdom advance. And that is the exact tension that we live in. That Jesus has come. He has commissioned us to destroy the works of the devil. But until he comes again, the devil still has the power to do evil things. And so we live in a time of warfare. We understand that the victory blow has been dealt. 
but the completion of the victory is still ahead of us. For example, think about, maybe some of you know a thing or two about D-Day, the D-Day invasion in, in World War II. You ask any historian, any scholar, hey, when was the victory achieved during World War II? They will all tell you the victory was effectively achieved when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and took back France from the Axis powers. That at that point, a death blow was dealt to the Axis and it was just a matter of time before the war would be won. However, and so there's three years between D-Day and VE Day. There was three years of that victory being completed. However, might surprise you to know that more casualties happened in those three years than any other part of the war. We live in the in-between time. Jesus has come and dealt the death blow to the enemy, but the enemy, as he's being defeated, is going to strike back as much as he possibly can. And I think that we should expect that there are going to be hard battles. There are going to be battles where we pray and the enemy's will wins out over God's will. As we're seeing his victory completed, but we can know that there will be a time when the victory, there is a VE day ahead for us. So we live in this in-between time. Same was true for the Civil War. After the surrender was signed, battles continued to happen for years after as the word got out across the country that the North, that the South had surrendered to the North. This is the time we live in where the victory blow has been dealt, but battles still happen. And the choice is, what are, are we going to look at the evil, look at the battles that are still happening and say, well, this must be God doing this. Or are we going to say, man, the enemy is fighting back. And so what I'm going to do is put on my hat as being a son or a daughter of God and use the authority that he's given me to push back the works of the enemy, to push back the kingdom of darkness. One last question. We might ask, well, okay, if evil is going to keep happening and it's not God's will, if evil is going to keep happening until God moves the earth up into out of the battle, moves the earth up out of the battlefield and into the place of victory, and Satan is totally defeated and Jesus comes back, why doesn't he just speed up the process? Why doesn't he say, well, I'm sick of all this evil, so we're done? He could do that. I believe God could just speed up the process and, um, and Jesus could come back and that Satan could be completely defeated and we could be at VE day for us. I believe that, but I don't think I want that. And here's why. All my family members that haven't accepted Jesus yet, they'd be going to hell. All my friends, man, God, I know God's got their number. All my friends that have not been saved, I believe God is coming for them and for their salvation. I believe for all of you, for your unsafe family members and your unsafe friends, God is coming for their salvation. But if we, if he, if he ended it right now, it's done for them. And so until that, I know that day is coming when it is all going to end, when there's going to be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, when the, when the enemy will no longer be able to 
exercise power. I know that day is coming. But until then, I'm going to do everything I can to push back the works of the enemy, to push back the kingdom of darkness. So, what does praying from a kingdom perspective, what does praying from heaven's perspective look like? What if instead of trying to convince God to stop something evil from happening, our prayers looked like us doing everything we could to fire heavy artillery at the enemy? What if our prayers, instead of saying, God, would you please heal this whatever? What if it was like, sickness, I command you be gone in Jesus' name. You don't go, I'm praying tomorrow. I command you be gone in Jesus' name. Still didn't go, next day, I command you to be gone in Jesus' name. You see, praying from heaven's perspective, it's not being here on earth, looking up, imagining God as this like fickle genie who we're not sure if we've got any wishes left or not, but we're going to beg him, please, I just ask this one thing. I will, I will pray every day and I'll read my Bible for two years straight, three hours if you just do this thing. If you just give me one more wish. That's not what praying from heaven's perspective looks like. Praying from heaven's perspective is, like, is understanding this. I am seated in heavenly places with Christ. And him and I are, looking, are standing side by side. And we're looking down at the evil and the problems that exist in our lives and on our planet. And we are speaking against what the enemy is doing in Jesus' name. That's what our prayers should look like. That is what praying from heaven's perspective looks like. Third thing we might ask then is, okay, so then what do we ask God for? If, if we don't need to beg God to do good things, then should we ever even ask him to do anything? And the answer is yes, we do want to ask God to do things because in scripture, there's so many verses that say, um, present your request to God, petition God, but it just doesn't look like begging him to do good things. And that's going to be a message for another time. So I'm not going to go into that topic, but I will say this. When we start praying from heaven's perspective, we might not change God's mind, but our minds are going to be changed. As we start praying according to the will of God, we are going to start thinking more like God. And we're going to see breakthrough in our lives because of that. One last thing I want to say. A question you might be asking is, okay, so I get it that when evil happens, and when a good prayer goes unanswered, it's because the enemy is winning out over God's will. But it just feels wrong to say that God can want something to happen, but it doesn't happen because of the enemy. That just seems to go against everything I've ever believed about God, because God's all-powerful. Well, here's the thing. I think if that is you, you already be- probably already believe that God doesn't always get what he wants. Here's why. Let's read 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 4. Paul writes, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. God wants everyone to be saved. Is everyone saved? So, that means, as hard as it can be to say, God doesn't always get what he wants. And the same is true in your life with the healing that you've been praying for. God wants you to be healed. But there is a war that we're in. And so if the breakthrough isn't happening, don't blame God. Don't blame yourself. Blame the enemy and keep praying. 
And there will be a time where God gets everything that he wants. And until that time comes, let's just keep fighting. Let's keep praying. Let's keep praying. Let's not give up hope. If we pray and a sickness doesn't go away, let's say, okay, I'm coming back tomorrow. I'm praying my best prayer again. I'm going to go, you know, and, and let's keep on fighting. And we're not fighting to convince God, okay, they've done enough. We're fighting against the enemy that's fighting against us. So to summarize everything that we just talked about, three main takeaways. One, because the enemy still has power on earth, God's will is not always done. Second takeaway, God has already won the war, but there are still battles to be fought as we march toward victory. And we know that we have heaven's perspective when our prayers looked like acts of warfare. I encourage you, when you pray, treat your prayer like an act of warfare. And then third thing, until the full victory is completed, we are called to follow the model Jesus gave us and destroy the works of the devil. God's will is that someone is healed of cancer. The enemy's will is that someone keeps cancer. We fight against the enemy's will. God's will is that every relationship is mended. The enemy's will is that every relationship is broken. We fight against the enemy's will. God's will is that everyone be saved. The enemy's will is that everyone be damned. We fight against the enemy's will. We don't say, oh God, you must have a reason for not letting that person accept you. No, we say, enemy, I'm coming after you. So I encourage you, pray with heaven's perspective. Don't look up. Look down with Jesus next to you. And speak with the authority that you've been given. Father, we love you so much. You are incredible. You are good. And we pray that you just fill us up with your presence even more so that we can go out and take down as many of the enemy strongholds and camps that exist in our lives and in the people that we love's lives. Fill us with courage and boldness to do what we need to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, worship team. Yeah, thank you all for listening. I know there are still some questions that might be unanswered. Like, what about this verse? What about this? And there's just not time to go into it. But um, I encourage you, keep on exploring this topic. So communion people, you can start to get ready to serve communion. Ushers, you can come forward to receive the offering. I said this last week, I'll say it again. Thank you guys so much for giving. Every single dollar goes toward destroying the works of the devil. I promise you all that, seriously. (laughs) So we don't have any other way of of, of, of funding the ministries here. It all comes from your generosity. So thank you so much for that. Let's just go ahead and receive the offering when um, when you're ready. Also, we're going to be receiving communion here during the first song of worship. If you never receive communion at Vineyard Northwest, here's what it looks like. There's going to be two people standing in pairs. There's going to be pairs of people stationed throughout the auditorium. And one of them is going to be holding a plate full of crackers. The other is going to be holding a cup of grape juice. When you walk up to them during the, wor- or during the first worship song, feel free to leave your seat and to walk up to them. Take a cracker out of the um, plate 
dip it in the grape juice and eat it. This is symbolic of receiving what Jesus did for us in order to bring us back into relationship with God. So worship's going to get started here in a second. Communion people, you can go to your stations and let's spend, let's spend some time adoring Jesus.